When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to Slate.com slash Amicus Live for tickets. Hang Up and Listen is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible offers more than 150,000 audiobooks, all available for listening on your smartphone, tablet, and desktop. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash hangup. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of May 5th, 2014. On this week's show, we'll discuss the thrilling first round of the NBA playoffs, in which five of the eighth series went to a deciding seventh game, and three of the lower seeds knocked off their higher-seeded opponents. We'll also talk about the NFL draft, including the debate over whether Texas A&M quarterback Johnny Manziel will make a good pro, and NFL team's perpetual hunt for red flags. Finally, we'll conduct one of our not-so-regular hang-up-and-listen magazine clubs, dissecting the work of Sports Illustrated's Gary Smith, who's set to retire after 32 years at SI. I'm joined in Washington, D.C. by Stefan Fatsis, the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and the Friday sports correspondent for NPR's All Things Considered. Magazine legend, Stefan Fatsis. How are you? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> magazine legend meaning has never written for a magazine on a regular basis. Have you ever written for a magazine? I've written for Sports Illustrated. Are I wrote you, the cover story for POV magazine. The first are you a cover legend? Story in my daughter's <laughs> eyes. Magazine legend Stephen Fatsis. Hey, uh, podcast legend Mike Pesca is on the line from New York. It's uh, 
day one of your podcast, The Gist. How are you feeling, Mike? I feel well. I was kind of hoping you'd uh, introduce me as leafleteer. There's a... <laughs> What's the difference between a pamphleteer and a leafleteer? (laughs) Leafleteer doesn't have quite the commitment (laughs) as a pamphleteer. Just doesn't quite have the pamph. Yeah. Got to put a little pamph in it. You need more oomph in your leaf to get to the pamph. I was serious about your podcast starting today. I've you are? Wait, wait. <laughs> we have a lot of witty repartee up here, and I think that a lot of the things we say are all in jest, but not the gist. And people have wondered off and on what this means for your participation in Hang Up and Listen. And I would like to assure them that you will continue to be as much a part of Hang Up and Listen as you have been for the past uh, yeah. five years, which is a huge yeah. part, the hugest part. Yeah. The no, hugest part. Huge I'm part. here today, aren't I? You are you here are. today. How do, how do listeners know that we're taping today? They don't. What is today, oh, really? Yeah, this show will probably might air after the gist, but we're talking before the gist. That's uh, quite confusing. And congratulations, Mike Pesca. Name checked in the lead paragraph in the lead of a New York Times story about Slate podcasts. Yeah. But then again, think about how many times, you know, Cliven Bundy has had that same thing said about him. So, <laughs> uh, Slate Plus, I've mentioned it the last couple weeks, and you can sign up at slate.com slash plus. And I've mentioned you can get ad-free podcasts and extra podcast segments Five dollars per month or fifty dollars per year. But what I have neglected. But to what mention, I haven't mentioned, I knew it was going there. That was how the construct damn, demanded. Yeah. Damn, such a cliched construction. But what I have oh, I've got to I have to say it. <laughs> I've I've backed myself into a corner. There's a recommendations engine which has a collection of every afterball we've ever done and every audible recommendation, along with endorsements from the culture fest, cocktail chatters from the political gap fest. You can search it. By show, by person, if you only want to know um, what is Stefan Afterbald about, what is uh, Mike Afterbald about, um, they're sorted by topic. Really? That's so cool. Yeah, even Stefan doesn't know about it. That's how bad. Did not know about that. About alerting. <laughs> terrible job. Alerting stakeholders and listeners. Um, but if you subscribe at slate.com slash hangup plus, you can uh, revel in the extreme luxury and volume of the podcast recommendations engine. Speaking of, of volume, there are a lot of NBA playoff games. I didn't watch them all. I'm going to be honest with, uh, with the folks. There were eight best-of-seven series in the first round. There are 56 possible games uh, based on the multiplication table that we have on the wall here in the D.C. studio. We ended up getting 50 out of the 56 with only the Heat, Bobcats, Wizards, Bulls, and Blazers, Rockets failing to go the full seven in that last series. Portland's Damian Lillard uh, hit a three-pointer as time expired in Game 6 to stave off that Game 7. So that was just as exciting. Among the other highlights of Round 1, top-seeded Pacers and Spurs were each pushed to 7 by the underdog Hawks and Mavericks, respectively. By definition, Uh, underdogs, yeah. By definition. The Nets uh, beat the Raptors, by definition, a uh, extinct dinosaur. That was by one in Game 7 in Toronto on Paul Pierce's last second block a game uh, that Stefan Fats has described just prior to recording as terrible. Oklahoma City prevailed over Memphis in a series that featured four straight overtime games. And the Clippers beat the Warriors 126-121 in a game seven a few days after their owner was banned from the NBA for life. If having a gay player on your team ranks as a minus five on the one to 10 distraction scale, I think having your owner banned for life, that is a legitimate distraction. I'd put that as as an eight. Stefan, that's an eight. Eight. Ten. You think a ten? 
I mean, what, what else? A, what would be a greater distraction than having your owner banned for life? Owner banned for life and eaten by fire ants on the court. <laughs> yeah, you've got to li- leave a little bit of uh, true. ceiling. True. I'm not going to go for the full ten yeah. on the on the Can't distraction meter. That's right. Maybe not before you see the before you see <laughs> all eight other distracting candidates. Right. So, uh, Pesca, what are your thoughts on round one? Exciting round one. Thank you, Heat, for not letting that series go long. You took my entertainment into account. (laughs) Houston versus Portland, that would have been fine if that series had gone long. Pacers, I hate you, and you need to leave the playoffs. The Pacers are a four-point favorite against the Wizards. The Wizards or the Pacers are going to be in the Eastern Conference Finals. And two months ago, that would have been okay because it would have been the Pacers. That it would have been. But, uh, God, both those teams are terrible. Now, I think the Nets-Raptors series, that was a good series. Wizards are not terrible. Wizards ain't Continue. Wizards ain't good. So, Nets-Raptors was a good series. It might have not been a great Game 7, but, man, all these Canadians showing up in squares with foam fingers and, you know, one and those uh, thunder sticks. I mean, just publicly showing up for a (laughs) first-round game is pretty impressive. And that was a series, I watched most of that series, where just a couple things struck me. Every lead was eaten into, I think, more than any other series I've ever seen. DeMar DeRozan and, and uh, Kyle Lowry. Like, if these guys were the one-two team on a team in a bigger market or an American market, let's say the Knicks or anyone, they'd be really, really prominent. And people would be saying, how do we stop these dudes? And people would be talking, we need to get guys around these dudes, even though Amir Johnson was really good. But it seems like the Nets are Darren Williams, great player, and like a bunch of guys who someone recently had this thought about. Maybe he's still good at basketball, right? Like, I know Andre Blatch isn't old, but there was some question if that guy could be good at basketball, and Sean Livingston, and of course, Garnett and Pierce, a bunch of guys that someone recently thought about and said, they're probably not good at basketball anymore, but let's see if they are. And so I think they're an impressive team. I don't know if they could give the Heat the business, but I'm glad they're there. The other series I had a lot of thoughts about were the Grizzlies versus uh, Oklahoma City. And in that one, I just want to say this. It seems that, like, with the Pacers going seven, that really does make you question if they're good and how they went seven. And the fact that they went to seven against this awful Hawks team. I mean, it does seem that the Pacers are as discombobulated as we've been saying they are. But I wouldn't say the same thing about the Thunder. I think being pushed to seven by Memphis. Memphis is a really good team. The other stat is that the Thunder had a winning record this year. of uh, They had a 57% winning percentage winning teams. And if you go four of seven, that means you won 62% of the games in a seven-game series. So that's not that much different. So I wouldn't think the Thunder aren't as good as we once thought they were, but I would think that about the Pacers. It would have been hard for them to win 57% of their games in the first round. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's one of those unattainable yeah. stuff. All right. I think they should reseed. There should be a committee. We should throw out the Pacers and the Nets, and we should let the Grizzlies and the Warriors back into the playoffs. I think that would be an equitable outcome and more entertaining for the playoffs going forward. That is not going to happen. All of this praise for the Toronto fans, I was completely mystified by this. All right, they show up, they scream, they wear grammatically incorrect T-shirts. We the North? Like, what? I don't quite understand that. Um, It's a Winterfell thing. You wouldn't understand. I wouldn't understand. They scream a lot. They're loud. They received heaps of praise after the game because they they cheered for the Raptors, even in defeat and appreciation for their season. They also were screaming 
Paul Pierce sucks and bullshit on national television. I mean, give me a break. When did the the bar get so low for fandom that the mere act of applauding a team that you watched all season long and that performed okay in the first round of a playoffs, when did that act become something that requires genuflection on the part of media? I, I My Twitter feed was all about, oh, they're so classy. Oh, what a great display by the Raptors fans. Oh, what a wonderful game. That game sucks. Those were two teams playing terrible basketball in the fourth quarter. It dragged on interminably with 22nd and full timeouts near the end of the game. After each 22nd timeout near the end of the game, ABC insisted on going to a 30-second commercial, as Richard Sandomir pointed out on Twitter. That whole game left me bored toward the end. It was like, who's going to make the last mistake? Well, you know, Toronto made the last mistake. You, you think that Paul Pierce blocking that shot was a mistake by Toronto? I think that driving the lane into four Brooklyn Nets was a bad idea. That would be the mistake. Bad, bad Kyle Lowry. So bad. So is it bad for them to say that Paul Pierce sucks, but it's okay for you to say that the game sucked? I wasn't cheering it. <laughs> that game sucked. <laughs> that game sucked. Yeah, so with the Western Conference playoffs, all those series were close because those teams are all really good, good and very evenly matched. In the Eastern Conference playoffs, I do think it's correct that you just kept noticing the flaws in all of these teams. Toronto supposedly had a roster in which six guys shot in the high 30s or above on three-pointers. But when I was watching the game, it seemed like a majority of the players were afraid to shoot or could barely shoot. You know, you have Brooklyn, which has the issues that Mike laid out already. The Bobcats, that did not seem like a playoff team. The Pacers at times did not seem like a playoff team, and the Hawks looked like the better uh, club in that series. But I am so on on board with what you were saying, Mike, with, you know, a lot of these teams win or lose, and you're, you know, good for them, bad for them, whatever. But the Pacers actually make me angry. It makes me angry. Yeah. To watch them because and, and, and two months ago I was I couldn't be more excited for this uh, Pacers Heat in I, I thought that this was going to be the year where they would beat the Heat I was convinced of it and I think that the reason that they make you angry and it's a little bit like this with Oklahoma City as well is that it's the opposite of the Spurs offense where it's just so stagnant and they just end up you know either David West in the high post taking a twenty footer or Lance Stevenson getting the ball with like eight seconds left and then deciding that the best way to spend the rest of the shot clock is to dribble between his legs uh, 12 times and then hoist a three-pointer that hits the backboard. This is like the least fluid offensive team. And they're still, I think, good on defense. But it's just that combination is a brutal one. It's brutal so the hateful fa- So the, the hate factor is high with the Pacers. So we would rather see the Washingtons have a chance to play the Miamis. I think they, the Wizards even beat the Heat a couple times this year. Not that that matters. They did. And the Nets beat the Heat four times, four to nothing in the regular season. And the margins in those games, well, after regulation, the margins in those games were Nets by one, Nets by one, Nets by one, and tied. So that looks like it could be a promising series there. <laughs> Unless um, LeBron James says, you know what? The playoffs are a little more important than those regular season games when we're winning 58. So why don't we go play a little harder? So uh, Grizzlies Thunder, I think Mm. uh, that was a reminder to uh, many of us that when you play basketball, you're actually playing against another team. Uh, Some people (laughs) seem to have forgotten that uh, with, uh, you know, calling Kevin Durant Mr. Unreliable. I thought that that was 
very poor trolling on the part of the Oklahoma Sports Department. Okay, you call him Mr. Un- Unreliable. Fair play. Got the headline. Uh, then they apologized for it. That, that is weak. not how you troll. No. That is, no. That's how you troll in Oklahoma, maybe. <laughs> but whoever wrote that headline, you're not ready for the New York tabloids, my friend. That's how you troll if you want to live in a small community <laughs> where you keep bumping into Clay Bennett and his brethren. So in the first five games, uh, Kevin Durant shoots 40%, only 33% in game four and game five, preceding the Mr. Unreliable headline. He uh, averaged 34.5 points on 56% shooting, um, which you could choose to believe is regression to the mean or getting really fired up, coming through in the clutch. Um, But Tony Allen had a great series, and I thought Memphis made kind of a big mistake. I watched the beginning of that game six where Durant was just like making everything and not being guarded by Tony Allen. They only brought Allen off the bench late in the first quarter. I didn't really understand why Memphis didn't have him out every minute that Kevin Durant was also out on the floor. But this just shows that the more famous that you get, the better that you get, the dumber the things are that people say about you. And it's, I guess, a good sign for Durant's fame, the fact that he's now being talked about like he's LeBron James. Okay, here's this late-breaking media news. The Oklahoma newspaper was founded by American billionaire Edward Lewis Gaylord. Daughter Louise Gaylord married Clay Bennett. In other words, the owner of Thunder's wife is a scion, scioness of the newspaper, sits on the board of the newspaper. So it might be easier to get an apology from an employee of the newspaper when your team owner's wife's last name is on your paycheck. Okay, that just said. I, was, I watched a lot of the Thunder series. It seemed like Tony Allen was good. And so what happens, I think, with Durant and when it's so important that he always controlled the board, his shooting percentage was off. I don't think it's, this is weird, but and maybe it can be checked by someone with better stats than I. It seemed like he was not missing shots that were contested so much as being forced into bad shots. So he kind of sensed from Allen that Allen was up in his grill and he couldn't get good shots off. So he'd take a desperation type heave with two seconds left on the free on the shot clock. I'd like to see how often he shot with time one or two or three seconds left on the shot clock in this series. It seemed like a a lot more, which is just the specific way that Tony Allen played good defense on him. So uh, good on that. I also think that in a seven game series, it just seems harder even if you're a really good defender sure there'll be a baseline of good defense and perhaps you know if you don't have any answer for an offensive threat well then you're cooked but it seems really hard to consistently play really good defense against an exceptional scorer for seven games right after a while it seems like the scorer's innovation is going to be able to stymie the defender more so than the defender will think of a couple of new tricks to stymie the offensive player so i just think the longer these things go on maybe in a five game series the grizzlies could have won just based on you know the novelty i think def- yes there you go this is my theory great defense depends to some degree on novelty and that gets uh, dissipated over a seven game series i like it when mike pesca comes up with a theory (laughs) thinks of a theory out loud yeah well the grizzlies did beat the thunder in the playoffs last year with no westbrook and it was helped the thunder's cause by zach randolph getting suspended did not hurt for game seven yeah yeah so there you go a quick word about donald sterling donald sterling yeah mike what did well america's heard your thoughts in many different mediums have they not (laughs) Yes. <laughs> the political I'm on the record. Yes. You're on the record. <laughs> Stefan, what did you think? 
about the suspension, about the process taking its course, about the owner's voting to move ahead and stripping him of his ownership. I think, yeah, what you, know, you think? I, I think that, yeah, good for Adam Silver, good for the owners. I mean, I, I I don't agree with people that are now saying, Mike Wise in the Washington Post yesterday, I think, and other people saying that, that there is a slippery slope here that, ooh, the DeVos family, you know, gives money to anti-gay marriage causes and, ooh, uh, Gilbert in Cleveland, Quicken Loans, they defrauded people. That's not how the world works. The world works in this instance, when something directly affects the continued future of the business. Donald Sterling being a racist in a business, uh, 76% of the employees of this business are African-American. That's bad for business. That would have been terrible for the NBA going forward. The NBA taking a moral stance here on something that is directly related to how they conduct business both on and off the court. So this is going to go forward. I mean, the only remaining question is... Does he sue? And how far does he push it? And what kind of suasion does Adam Silver and the owners have against this guy who's now a pariah? And also, did the scuffling after the, the Warriors-Clippers game in the, in the hallway, did that have anything to do with this whole imbroglio? We will wait to see, Stefan, about the imbroglio. Our sponsor this week is Audible, the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment. With our special offer, you can get one of Audible's more than 150,000 titles for free. Uh, this week's Recommendation comes from John Worth, hang-up listener, Facebook user. He says uh, he just listened to Millions with his kids on a long spring break car trip, said it's a terrific story and narration. I have not read this book, uh, but I saw the Danny Boyle movie, which was excellent. The book is written by Frank Cottrell Boyce, and it is unabridged on Audible. And John Worth says that it's John Worth your time. Thanks to Audible's great offer for hang-up listeners. If you're in the United States, you never tried Audible before, you can get one free audiobook if you sign up for a free 30-day trial. Get that audiobook in the 30-day trial by signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash hangup. That's audiblepodcast.com slash hangup. The NFL draft moved off its traditional April date this year, moving back two weeks because of a supposed scheduling conflict at Radio City Music Hall. We know they can move around that Radio City schedule. It's been there since 2006. Rockettes. They know Game when the, the Rockettes. They know the NFL bows to no event. But as far as the NFL is concerned, that extra time, that scheduling conflict, that wasn't the worst thing in the world. Roger Goodell has explained that from our standpoint, it's another two weeks that people are talking about the draft. So what are people talking about? They're talking about whether uh, Johnny Manziel will be taken in the first three rounds. Uh, Ron Jaworski said he would not. And ESPN spun a fake news story out of its own analyst dinging a uh, draft prospect. Mike Pesca's nemesis, the anonymous NFL exec, called uh, Jadavian Clowney spoiled and lazy. So I don't think that the extra two weeks has led to a heightened debate, some more long-form analysis of what we can expect in these three days and Radio City Music Hall it's just led to more uh, picking apart of players, not necessarily in the, any more in the media. It doesn't mean that there was more picking apart of players by teams. The Saints uh, went to Las Vegas because they they were done. Done. Their board was finished. The last magnet was magnetized. So, uh, Mike, the top two guys in the draft this year, uh, Manziel and Clowney, uh, doesn't seem like the Texans have decided who they're going to pick, and they've both been uh, scrutinized more uh, than than any other players. Uh, what do you think of said scrutiny? The trend seems to be 
listing the positives and listing the negatives and then imagining what the negatives could be based on personality. So we could do that with Clowney and Manziel. And it seems like there's not too much tangible, but, uh, you know, you could imagine that Clowney's lazy. There were some plays in college where he didn't want to uh, expose his ACLs to injury, I guess. And you could imagine that Manziel spoiled because, you know, he's rich, therefore he's spoiled. What about how he played? Isn't that a good indication of how he'll play in the future? No, 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 no. It's his daddy's net worth. So it doesn't seem like if you had the perfect guy, if you had the guy who everyone knew would go first, we'd either do one or two things. Not even everyone knew would go first. There would, of course, be picking over, you know, this guy's flaws. Let's call him Andrew Luck. Yeah, we'd have to ignore him and then go on to the next guy who we can pick over. And it's this weird game. It's the male version of soap operas or it's the male version of the celebrities just like us. Like we just love imagining these people, you know, in their socks and underwear and thinking of them less as gods and more as, oh my God, what if he, uh, you know, what if he gets tempted to sell his autograph again? Oh wait, that's legal. It's just ridiculousness. Also, you know, they put together these list of flaws of these quarterbacks and some of these flaws go 20, 25 points long, you know, and so I've seen this with Manziel and I was listening to uh, Peter Schrager's podcast and he was talking about this. He says like, look at the list of flaws. And this guy was going to go number one, 25. And the expert that he was talking to said, yeah, you know what? There were like three quarterbacks in the NFL that you can't write 25 flaws about. You can probably write a dozen flaws about Aaron Rodgers. So real or imagined, everyone has certain flaws. I find it really just boring. You know, that would be the word I would use, boring and get a life, guys. And let's tune in the day of the draft. And then we'll see the guy put on a hat and then we'll watch him actually play in a game. And then in two years, he'll be a really good quarterback. And what do we all talk about? There's no better expert on uh, the possibility of recidivism or of uh, character than the Jacksonville Jaguars player personnel guy. I think that guy's just got his finger on the pulse. But I think the undercurrent of truth here is that we really don't know if Johnny Manziel is going to succeed in the NFL. It probably won't be uh, because of any of the supposed personality traits or character flaws. I think there are real questions about whether his actual on-field style of play will work in the NFL. And a lot of that has to do with whether the team that drafts him will orient itself around how he succeeds or will try to change him and mold him into what's you know seen as a more traditional NFL quarterback. But if he does succeed or does fail, then inevitably people will look to the personality and will look to the character as the explanation for that. And that, I think, is what's annoying. And the the fundamental you know thing that you're talking about, Mike, is that even on draft day, you don't know what the answer is. So it's this whole long, drawn-out process of fake analysis, and it culminates in draft day in which Mel Kuyper or whoever assigns grades to the draft that are, you know, there's no more information even once we know where everyone's going. Do you know who the top three picks of the last draft were? No lineman, idea. lineman, and other guy. Oh, that uh, Luke Jokel guy? He was second. Jokel. Someone named Eric Fisher was first. Oh, yeah. The Chiefs. Chiefs and Dion Jordan was third. Now, if we consider the amount of Time. It's not fair. You use linemen to make your point. That's not fair. <laughs> Andrew Luck and RG3. 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 If we, if we analyze Dane the Manning went first, time, Ryan Leaf went second. Do we also know how much each of those individuals contributed to their teams in the 2013 season? 
Well, that's 2013. It's a new year. It's a new year. Time to start all over. Yes. Right. Which is the point. Which is the point that the vast majority of the players that are going to be picked are not going to have huge contributions to their teams initially and, you know, over the long term, too, because most of these guys will not succeed and have five to 10 year careers in the National Football League. So we expend all of this mental energy and I haven't expended that much mental energy in, fa- in fairness. And, you know, writers for, for websites like the National Football Post, <laughs> Mike dug up the red flag reports that the National Football Post has been posting about draft picks. Red flag report. I think it's got a little got music that goes flags. with it. Yeah. Well, the good video, too. Red flags flying all over the screen. All of this is in the, in the service of, of the NFL's business. And I have this image of Roger Goodell and other NFL executives sitting in a room cackling. You know, they sort of click on a website and they read a red flag report and then they cackle and then they turn on ESPN and they watch a mock draft with serious analysis and they cackle. Then they go to Twitter and they then they read SI's fan mock draft. Send your votes in. Who's going to be picked now? And they cackle. Oh, I thought it was like Fireman Ed goes first. <laughs> that would be good too, though, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Ra- Raider dude from Mad Max goes second. Yeah. <laughs> but these are hugely important Decisions for these franchises, that's what we need to separate out here. You don't know whether they've made the right choice. But it's like with quarterbacks, the majority of quarterbacks taken in the first round are not successes by any metric that we would measure success. That being said, the vast majority of successful quarterbacks of Super Bowl winning quarterbacks are taken in the first round. Russell Wilson, Colin Kaepernick. Yeah, they are the exceptions. You have identified a few exceptions. But the vast majority of Super Bowl winning quarterbacks were taken in the first round. So it's just an issue of the NFL, and this is true in baseball too, of fans now identifying with the general manager, with the personnel guy, with the scout, with the, you know, the internet enables you to watch all of the game tape, to read all of the analysis. But You just don't know the answer. It's a book without a final page. It's just totally unsatisfying. And yet, you know, you're hardened or disappointed by what happens on draft day when you don't know the results. That's the genius of the NFL. That's the genius of Roger Goodell. That's, you know, having the schedule roll out and saying that's an easy game. That's a hard game. That's an easy game. Then you'll end up losing to the Browns and, you know, beating the Seahawks. It's just all part of the, the soap opera. Yeah, okay, so here's my more than pet peeve, eh, pet peeve bordering on moral outrage. I think that, and Menzel gets to this, clowny, the negatives on those guys, no one's saying they're terrible people. Actually, a lot of people are saying they're terrible people, fans of the other teams. But they're not terrible people, or they might be terrible people. We don't know if they're terrible people. But the point is that maybe they have some flaws that humans of the age of 21 and 22 have, and perhaps those flaws will redound to their lack of success or not maximization of their potential on a football field. Then you have the guys who are, you know, the big red flag guys. And some of these guys, like... Red flag report. You get busted for drugs. All right, how do we contextualize that? What do we think about that? The very serious issue of sexual assault or spousal abuse. A few of these, not spousal, but uh, um, abusing women. A few of these guys have this. What do we do about that? Then you get, like, it seems really bad guys. Like Jeremy Hill, who pled guilty uh, running back on LSU is this great running back, like, could run through a wall, will definitely both run past you and through you. But 
he had sex when he was in high school with like a 14-year-old and pled guilty to carnal knowledge of a juvenile, a misdemeanor. Then when he was in college, just punched some dude. There's a video of it online. It seemed like the dude wasn't threatening him. It was an argument in a parking lot. Pretty vicious, you know. And this was while he was already on probation for the carnal knowledge of a juvenile. And so, you know, it adds up to maybe thinking that Jeremy Hill is kind of a bad guy. And, of course, we have to always only think about this. Yes, but what will this mean to his potential as a running back? I don't like to have to be put in this position. By the way, the Red Flag Report considered Jeremy Hill medium high, medium high Red Flag. You're saying he's he's off your draft board. We took him yeah. off our board. Yeah, but I, you know, by draft board, I'd like to also, uh, you know, think of it as my moral radar. Then we have this guy who's a tight end from Oregon named Colt Lierla. And Lierla, oh my God, he had a lot of trouble in high school. He would go missing from the team for days at a time. The reports like uh, CBS has all these anonymous, of course, anonymous scouts saying, Outside of a structured environment, this guy is a nightmare. So, so far, it doesn't seem like, you know, maybe not necessarily evil, but okay, so, so far, everything's in the context of not wanting to draft him. And then you find out that he tweets about kind of denying or buying into some bizarre conspiracy about the Sandy Hook shooting. What? This is what he spends his time on Twitter saying things like, the parents of the kids that supposedly died in the Sandy Hook situation are liars, he tweeted and then later deleted. And then he gave an apology which said, I feel I made a mistake in getting involved in such a personal matter on such a public platform. I'm apologetic to my teammates and my coaches and the program for doing that. No apology to the you know, families of the victims. So this guy actually has these crazy ideas about Sandy Hook. Okay, so I'm disgusted. And then he was arrested for doing blow in the front seat of his car. This guy seems like an awful human being. I don't want to have to even consider if he's going to drop from the late first round to the sixth round. I just resent having to consider this awful human being. And then if you Google Colt Lierla's draft status, one of the first responses is, this is why the Patriots need to grab him high. He'll be a great bargain. Yeah, great team. Great team for a troublesome tight end in the geographic area that includes Connecticut is to draft Colt Lierla. I mean, come on. I hate being a finger wagger. I hate being a moral absolutist or anything like that. But my God, what the uh, what the NFL asks us to do and just to evaluate these guys as an asset or as a piece of capital instead of a human being kind of disgusts me. The pe- it's piece of meat, Mike, not just piece of capital. It's how can uh. this cog, you know, be fit into our organization and make us better. The bottom line is how good can he be for our team? And this is the problem. If he's a bad guy, then nobody should draft him. He should be punished for his transgressions because we have been down this road countless times. Teams believe like they have a savior complex, that we can reform someone, we can change him, we can make him better. Does that mean he shouldn't have an opportunity to work in his chosen field? Yeah, he's got an opportunity. Somebody could draft him. But you know what? I can choose not to draft you because you have exhibited terrible judgment. You've behaved poorly. You've been involved in criminal episodes. And you're going to be more trouble than you're worth going forward. It is a, you know, this, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit when we talk about Richie Parker and the Gary Smith story in Sports Illustrated about him. But teams believe against all history and all evidence that they can be the reformers with the vast majority of players that come into the league with bad records, with criminal records. 
And they usually don't succeed in reforming them. But there is this blinder mentality, and I think it's in the NFL. It is greater than in other sports. There's a belief that we can reform someone because we want to believe that he will be so helpful to us in winning football games. This is, like, way too involved of a conversation to tag on to the end of an NFL draft discussion. But I feel like there's a lot to pick apart in what you guys are saying. I think a lot of... The problem that we get into is in conflating things that are not actually crimes or even necessarily moral transgressions with things that are criminal. And, you know, with Johnny Manziel, he's talked about in the same way that Jeremy Hill has talked about. It's not like Johnny Manziel's flag is maroon and Jeremy Hill's is, you know, Medium Burgundy. high. Medium high to low. They're both medium. They're both red flags. And I think that you get into this situation where NFL teams, anonymous scouts, media members can't tell the difference. But I also just don't necessarily sign on with the idea that people that do have criminal records should not be allowed to play in the NFL. And what no, inevitably allowed. What inevitably happens is that if, say, this, you know, Oregon tight end doesn't get drafted in the NFL, he'll go to play in the in Canadian football. And is that like somehow better for the world that this guy is playing football in Canada rather than playing in the NFL? It, it's just like that's like a different circle of hell than playing in Cleveland or playing in Houston or something. I guess what you're saying is correct, Stefan, that a team can say, we don't want you on our team and that doesn't prevent anyone else from having them. It's just like the NFL has no moral high ground to stand on about anything. And the fact that they would, you know, whether it's the Jacksonville personnel guy or an anonymous scout would say, this guy has no place in our organization or no place in that league. It's like, fucking spare me, dude. Come on. The NFL is like more morally culpable than, you know, anyone this side of Aaron Hernandez. The end. After 32 years at Sports Illustrated, long form writing legend Gary Smith is retiring from the magazine. Back in 2003, Ben Yugoda wrote in Slate that Smith is not only the best sports writer in America, he's the best magazine writer in America. That belief has been validated by Smith's record-setting four National Magazine Awards. That's the magazine equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize. His stories have also appeared in the anthology Best American Sports Writing 13 times. Last week, SI asked Smith's colleagues and admirers to name their favorite Gary Smith story. And what was striking was how many different essays got a mention. It was impossible for us to pick, you know, these are the three best Gary Smith stories, but we picked out three um, that we thought would be interesting to talk about. On what I believe is the second ever Hang Up and Listen magazine club, we're going to talk about Crime and Punishment, a profile of basketball player Richie Parker, whose sexual assault conviction as a high schooler turned into a morality play, Someone to Lean On, the story that was turned into the movie Radio, and remember his name and examination of the life and death of football player turned army ranger Pat Tillman. So looking back on these three stories, I could remember reading them at the time and also looking through uh, some of Smith's other work. Um, I don't generally have a great memory for stuff I've read, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, but a lot of this stuff had kind of been in the recesses of my mind that I hadn't realized. And another thing that occurred to me was, you know, I was in high school when I read the Richie Parker story or when I read the radio story. And that for me, and I think for a lot of people, this was my first encounter with quote unquote good writing, with mm-hmm. writing in Sports Illustrated that 
not only the prose was good, not only were the observations good, but he uh, took on sort of meaty, weighty subjects. It wasn't about, you know, Pete Sampras won Wimbledon and here's our look at that. It was about something that I wouldn't have known about, which I think the Richie Parker story would have fallen into that category. And it's a a story that made you think, maybe I want to be a writer. And I think along with Bill Simmons of the last, you know, 30 years, he's probably been the most influential writer on other writers, people um, imitating him, people thinking that he's the kind of writer that they wanted to be. Um, So, Stefan, why don't you start by talking about the Richie Parker story, Crime and Punishment, 1996. 1996. Yeah, Richie Parker was a high school basketball player in Manhattan, 15 minutes in a stairwell in his high school. He and another boy coerced a girl to perform oral sex on them, uh, 15 minutes that changed his life. Gary Smith takes the story not in a sort of conventional direction. He does it in 12 parts. Um, And the parts are people that were part of the orbit of this story, that were part of the explosion that occurred. One of them and a main actor and not someone he profiles first was the reporter for the New York Post who hammered away at the Richie Parker story. And his MO was to call the athletic director at each school that expressed interest in Richie Parker and ask them, why are you considering giving a scholarship to someone who committed sexual assault, a sexual felon? And that led to an implosion at this campus, and Richie Parker was denied an opportunity. He also writes about the victim. He writes about a teacher. He writes about... A woman who was herself a victim of rape a and how she became en- enmeshed in the story as well. A, an editor at Newsday. And what he does, and he uses the analogy of cesium an element that attaches itself to other elements and that you see the ripple effects of the Richie Parker story. And it all, it is all beautiful and it is condensed in one idea. And Gary Smith writes it this way. Sports having somehow become the medium through which Americans derive their strongest sense of community has become the stage where all the great moral issues have to be played out often rough and ugly right alongside the games. There was always an element of something deeper in Gary Smith's stories and you didn't, it wasn't always handed to you easily. And I think that's what made his narratives, these, these essays really like pieces of fiction. And he had said that when he wrote these stories, he wanted them to read like pieces of fiction. You notice a, a, a absence of quotation in a lot of the stories, um, a depth of psychological profiling that could only be the result of hours and hours of reporting. That, And I think that's the hallmark of these stories, is that they read like fiction, but the reporting is just unassailable. It's, it's remarkable, the level of depth and detail. Yeah. Uh, so the Richie Parker story was I found out about it or I first started hearing about it when uh, Mike on the Mike and the Mad Dog show called Seton Hall and started a campaign to get him bounced from Seton Hall. And how can Seton Hall, a Catholic school, allow this guy admission? So this was a lot like what the uh, Post reporter at the time, Barry Baum, was doing. Mm-hmm. Baum, by the way, went on to become and is still is the executive vice president and chief communication officer for the Brooklyn Nets and Barclays Center, which I find interesting. And so, yeah, I mean, what he does with Parker, it's the reporting it's the conception, it's executing the conception, and it's the words. It's amazing. Radio, the story about the story that became the movie starring Cuba Gooding Jr., and it was, you know, a Disney Five feel good movie, I thought had 
great breadth and it didn't have the stakes, if you will, of the Parker story. And it wasn't perhaps about an injustice, but it was a story that wouldn't have been. It was one of these things that's in plain sight that wouldn't have been noted on a national stage, except Smith said this is the sort of thing around the world of sports that bears noting. And so it's about how all these, let's say, developmentally disabled um people uh, attach themselves to high school sports. And the main one was uh, this guy who always used to say radio. And so they called him radio and he was, you know, a fixture in a South Carolina high school. The movie, of course, made it a cleaner narrative. But I just think that the words that I would affix to uh, my impression of that story are craftsmanship and humanity. And I think Smith brought that. Now, sometimes he would bring his uh, grand eloquence And I think that word means eloquence, but overly grand, right? Am I using that right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think grand eloquence is a little bit like pomposity of language. And sometimes when the stories didn't deserve it, he'd put that gloss on them. And you'd say to yourself, oh, I'm reading one of these new magazine pieces that try to be so important when it's really just about, you know, whatever, the horse that just won the Kentucky Derby. I mean, do we really need this about, you know, Gary Templeton? He's a great shortstop, but my God, you're going crazy. Actually, the Gary Templeton piece was a great piece, so I shouldn't have used that one. But yeah, the thing is, so many people copied the Gary Smith style that when Gary Smith did a B-plus piece, maybe you would think of it either as not as great as he could be or too much like other pieces that you've read. But the difference is he, I don't think that he used his uh, writing as a crutch for lack of reporting. I think he always reported out every story. And the more he reported stories, the better the writing became. And there were years, for a few years in Sports Illustrated, I think it's gotten really better, where if it didn't have a book excerpt of a book that I knew I was going to like, or if it didn't have a Gary Smith's piece, I kind of wouldn't read the articles in Sports Illustrated. So with the radio story, there were parts of it that made me cringe a bit. And I don't know if that was because of the subject matter, if another writer could have done it better, or if it was because of Smith himself. Like there was an account of radio eating all the sandwiches in the team bus and how you couldn't possibly be mad at him. There lay radio in the front seat, doubled in pain, sweating bullets. And there lay the cooler, bereft of all 30 roast beef sandwiches, not to mention a dozen sodas that Jones had packed for the kids. Dim sandwiches, good, radio still yelps a decade later. And it just makes you cringe a bit. I just think that story, especially after reading the Parker one, I read them in that order. It just doesn't aspire to as much. Um, It doesn't capture the kind of depth and the moral complexity. It's more of a kind of a feel-good story that we're all very familiar with from reading it in the local paper, from reading it in Sports Illustrated, from reading it elsewhere. But it's a feel-good story that's fleshed out, and I think that's the difference. We're used to seeing these as these little saccharine tablets, you know, these these little pops of humanity, whereas what he did was really explore this person's life and the lives of those around him. And that was Smith's trademark. It was this exhaustive probing into the intellectual and psychological lives of his subjects. And I think when I didn't like Gary Smith, it was when the writing became overly mannered, as you sort of hinted at, Mike, and overly enigmatic, and 
he used the question mark to a fault where it becomes very lofty in feeling like he's raising some sort of great moral questions that we don't really have the answer to. He wants us to ponder the mystery of life. And I think that sometimes the writing would stray into that. It becomes almost sort of Dashiell Hammett-y. It's a little bit strained. Well, what did you guys think of the cesium, Adam, and the Richie Parker story? Because I think that that story is unassailable in its structure. I think it's a great story, um, no matter how you structure it. But I think the way he did it with the 12 different parts, with the 12 different people, with making no conclusion about, oh, let's feel bad for Richie Parker. Oh, let's you know feel bad for the newspaper. It's It kind of covers every area, but it doesn't feel wishy-washy. Um, that part, I don't think you can criticize. But I don't think the story would have been any worse without, if, without the cesium atom. I said this to Scott Price, uh, S.L. Price, our friend and Sports Illustrated writer and great admirer of Gary Smith, who wrote the tribute in the magazine this week to Gary. And I said that I was ambivalent about it because it didn't feel necessary. But then I read it again, and I read one line where Smith wrote, almost everywhere it goes, trying to rid itself of the baggage of that one electron, another eruption occurs, and only those who understand what cannot be seen can make any sense of it all. So you could argue that, wow, that really does encapsulate the story, the complexity that a university president um, like Trachtenberg at GW, who wanted to give Richie Parker a chance until he was hounded into not giving him a chance. You know, it feels like, well, the metaphor does make sense. And I sort of came around on second reading that adding a metaphor there to the story to give it this little bit of distance from the facts and the profiles worked. Um, Initially, I didn't feel that way. And it did take a sort of second and someone prodding me to sort of try again. All right. And the third story we're going to talk about is Remember His Name about Pat Tillman. Uh, Gary Smith had written a profile of Tillman a few years earlier after his death by Friendly Fire, but before it was revealed by the army that um, he had died at the hands of friendly fire. So I think Smith believed that he had made a mistake, that his omniscience had been uh, shown to be flawed in that case, not of any fault of his own. But I think that kind of showed that one thing that no writer, no matter how much reporting he does, you can't overcome the flawed memories or the subjective memories of your subjects. And Smith always treated his uh, subject's memories as flawless, I think. Um, But the second go-round with the Tillman story, when I think he was more skeptical, when he went back for, you know, even more depth, even more reporting, that turned into a classic piece. Again, one that defined the subject, one that's emotional, one that's moving, one that you read today and, and feel really holds up. I remember the Pat Tillman story as it was going on and the coverage thereof. And I think the Washington Post had, or I'm trying to remember who it was. might have been the Washington Post, had some um, fact-driven stories about how the narrative that the Pentagon was giving wasn't correct. I've seen documentaries about it since then. But I always say to myself, ah, yeah, that's not what really happened, or I know what happened with Pat Tillman, or, you know, the way you're describing him as you give this speech and retire his number on the field at uh, ASU is not exactly reflective of what he really felt. And I realize informing me in this is the Gary Smith story. Like that guy defined Pat Tillman for me in the way I do the same thing with any time someone says something that 
doesn't feel right about inner city drug trade. And I realize I'm so informed by The Wire, which is a work of fiction, when I say, oh, that's not really how it happens. But it just seemed that Smith's story about Tillman was so you know, filled with actual facts and great reporting, but also contextualizing it and putting in a way that you really understand that, you know, big point. It wasn't patriotism per se that was driving Pat Tillman. It was this aspiration to, and this is something the military says, to be part of something bigger than oneself, but also knowing that he would always question himself if there was, you know, this great societal upheaval that called upon some to sacrifice and that he wasn't the one who would sacrifice. I mean, you just get a sense of this guy so much so that you know him and you understand him. And I think that we criticize, is it Lipside who says, you know, godding up sports figures or this hero worship? But what he does in the Tillman story is actually paint a real picture of heroism that you can empathize with. And I think mostly heroism is where you say, you know, the one of the heroic aspects is I, I could never imagine myself doing that or I don't even know how he finds the hero, finds his motivation. It must be this quality called heroism. And Smith just defines it like you totally understand this guy and his motivations. And, you know, it's so fully fleshed out and therefore, you know, it makes the tragedy of what happened all the more horrific. And that's really, if you're summing up Gary Smith's career at SI, is what his stories were about. They were about fully fleshing out. They were about the complexity of life. They were about avoiding the cliche, the black and white profile. They were about revealing that sports figures are as emotionally complex, more so maybe, than the rest of us because of what they do that's so great. His profile of Dale Brown is brilliant in that. His profile of Mia Hamm, also brilliant in how it exposes this frail, conflicted woman at the core of this brilliant athlete who needed years to accept her celebrity and her abilities as a player um, and only came to peace with it really near the end of her career. You can criticize Gary Smith for over-psychologizing, for reading too much into the minds of his subjects, but then you go back and you read the details and you, and you recognize and appreciate how much work and how much trust he must have obtained from his characters in order to get to his final points. He's the perfect uh, writer to, you know, if you want to look back on someone's career, and it shows that writers are evaluated differently, I think, than athletes, because he took so many big swings at his subjects. And I can remember reading stories where I thought, you know, this isn't working for me. And just in general, his style of writing is not something that I would usually respond to because of the grandiloquence or because of the way that you just knew it was a Gary Smith story. He didn't feel the need to recede into the background. But when you're looking back, when he did connect, it was so great and so profound and so moving. And that's really how writers are remembered by their best pieces. It's not like a basketball player who you'll remember him choking in the clutch or a football player dropping a pass in the end zone, you don't really remember the duds and you don't remember the ones that, you know, just didn't quite work. Like his anthology is very, very strong. And that's the reason people will remember the guy. All right. Time for our afterballs. And Stefan reminds us that when DeMar DeRozan, Raptors all-star, went to USC, one of the conditions was that little Romeo would also receive a scholarship, his best pal, son of Master P. 
Percy Miller Jr. Lil Romeo, not an all-star. Not uh, playing for the Raptors. He was, pretty, he was a starter on his high school team in Beverly Hills. My former Wall Street Journal colleague, John Weinberg, did the definitive story about USC admitting the two of them together. Um, this was a Tim Floyd situation. Wasn't it was it? a Tim Floyd situation. He was not a very good by Division I standards basketball player. They both left school before completing their four years of higher education. Uh, Mike, what is your little Romeo? So, game seven, NBA playoffs, where it's win or go home. But let's examine this for a second. If the home team wins, they actually stay home. So it should be win or stay home. Now, if the road team wins, then it's win and go home because they get to go back to their home. But if the home team wins, but in the next round of the playoffs, they'd be the away team, it's actually win and go away because they have to travel. If the road team wins and they're also going to be the road team for them also it's win and go away not to the home you're going to go there's really only one situation where win or go home is true and it happens a lot it's when the road team loses they indeed have to go home but a caveat should be added which is they'd be going home anyway so there are very few situations where the decree of win or go home is true and then you get to the NCAA tournament and neutral ground, but we're not even going to talk about that. That's it. That's my little Romeo. <laughs> that was a little Romeo. Uh, Stefan, what is your little Romeo? Brazil has won five World Cups more than any other nation, but ask a Brazilian for the defining moment in the country's football history, and he'll talk about the 2-1 to loss to Uruguay in the 1950 final at Maracanã Stadium in Rio. The villain was and remains Moacir Barbosa, the goalkeeper who was neither forgiven nor allowed to forget what happened with 11 minutes to play when he dived to his left but failed to stop a right-footed bullet by Alcides Gigia. On Tuesday, ESPN will debut the half-hour short film Barbosa, The Man Who Made Brazil Cry. It's it's directed by my friend and hang-up listener and commenter, Locke Phillips, and produced by my other friend, multi-time hang-up guest Jonathan Hawk, and one-time hang-up guest Roger Bennett. Locke Phillips joins me now for a quick Q&A about Barbosa. What's up, Locke? Well, me being interviewed is up. Awesome. That's not normal for me. Let's do it. It's hard to overstate the scope of the narrative spun from the goal scored on Barbosa. At the beginning of the film, you quote Brazilian playwright Nelson Rodriguez calling it our Hiroshima. This loss, Barbosa's failure, was used to define Brazil's national character, luckless, cursed, lacking in moral fiber. How did you approach the story? Well, I like the use of the word overstate there, because to compare anything in a soccer game to Hiroshima is well out of bounds to me. And I have to say, as a hang-up listener, I share the show's uh, skepticism about some of the narratives spun around sports, so I certainly approach the story with that in my pocket. That said, though, it's a doc, and I'm not Brazilian, so I mostly listen to people I interviewed for the film, particularly uh, Roberto Mylarch, who wrote a biography of Barbosa. And I think to get to your point about how Brazilians use it to define their national character, that's tricky, especially for an American to parse that. It's amazing to me that the 1950 loss is still such a big deal, considering that Brazil has now won more World Cups than anyone, and I don't know why they can't let it go. All I can offer is that we shot at Vasco da Gama, a game uh, from Barbosa's old team while we were there, and the game ended in a draw. And the feeling in the stands after the game was this bizarre mixture of sadness and anger. And the angry fans were yelling at the players leaving the field, and the sad fans stayed in their seats for a long time grieving. There wasn't a lot of evidence of, oh, a draw is okay, we got a point. 
Yeah, and Locke, you use in the film footage of Barbosa being interviewed on TV near the end of his life, and the journalists who are interviewing him just exude smugness. I mean, they want to rip the guy to shreds. They don't give him a break. And we talk about false narratives in sports journalism. I mean, how consciously were you attacking the Barbosa narrative? Pretty consciously, because Roberto Mylarch, when I first talked to him, he suggested that I should do that. And Roberto's on the show, so I don't want to put him in that category of among the smug journalists. But he suggested that, you know, that when he, he was at the game, and he said, when I left the game, I didn't feel either that it was a national tragedy or that it was Barbosa's fault. And there really isn't a lot of evidence that it was Barbosa's fault. Yeah, and Brazilians, though, wanted to believe that. And on that show... Barbosa said, whether I failed or not, there's no way to go back in time. The Brazilians, though, wanted to blame him. They wanted a scapegoat instead of just saying, hey, this guy tried and failed to stop a great shot on a breakaway. They also wanted to believe that Barbosa died broke and drunk as if he was never able to recover from letting down the country, which, as you point out, wasn't true. First of all, I love this. Roberto refers to the footage of the goal as our Zapruder footage. It's really a shot of Gigi coming down the wing, and you can't really see where Barbosa is. The evidence is murky as to whether it was really his fault. I mean, he did get beat on the near post, and that's a no-no. But I think fans these days do recognize that it's very speculative that it was his fault and that they're hesitant to blame a goalkeeper in soccer anyway. We talked to a lot of people on the streets, his neighbors, etc., and we didn't get the feeling that people still wanted to punish Barbosa. I think the press wants to keep that narrative going more than people themselves feel that. All right, Locke Phillips directed Barbosa, the man who made Brazil cry. It's going to be on ESPN on Tuesday, 7 p.m. Eastern, along with another World Cup short, Mysteries of the Remet Trophy. Locke, the film is terrific. Everyone should watch it. Thanks for coming on. Thanks. Guys, keep up the good work. Josh, what is your little Romeo? Thanks, Locke. I've actually never been asked that before, uh, but I do have a little Romeo for you. Uh, I edited a story on the beginnings of a college roller derby scene. Uh, there was just recently the first ever college match between Arizona and Arizona State, and the story was written by an ASU English professor who goes by the nom de derby, Stone Cold Jane Austen. Uh, Team USA uh, represents the United States in the international scene of roller derby. There was a World Cup in 2011 in which they beat the uh, international teams by such scores as like 500-something to four. But the 2014 World Cup, I think the world is going to have made some progress. That's just my prediction. That's going to happen in Dallas uh, this December. And uh, the rosters are posted for anyone who wants to look. And some of the players on the U.S. team are uh, Snot Rocket Science, Susie Hot Rod, Teflon Donna, Trauma, Erkin Jerkin as Booty Blockia, Julie Adams, and Tracy Akers. So I was curious, why uh, is there a Julie Adams next to a Snot Rocket Science? So there's a movement in roller derby that they want to be taken seriously as athletes, and the feeling is that the roller derby names, which are famous and everyone knows, uh, will prevent them from being taken seriously. They make people think that it's in, not a real sport, that it's like pro wrestling, when in fact it is real. Um, and the Denver Roller Dolls, um, that's the league in uh, Colorado, they are at the forefront of this movement. Julie Adams and Tracy Akers are both from uh, Denver, and they've written on their website um, that the drawback of derby names is that roller derby gets lumped in as a scripted sport with fake fighting and fake names. Um, Each skater has the option to choose under which name she skates, and many have opted to use their legal names 
while competing on a national stage. These women have proven they have the talent and dedication to compete with the best in the sport, and they choose to own their accomplishments to be recognized by their real names for their skill and achievements. And so what the Denver players have done is that when they're playing internationally or when they're playing on a travel team, they'll use their real names. When they're playing in Denver, in that league, they'll use uh, nicknames such as Crash Dance, Fonda Pain, and Beware. There was a woman who is the groundbreaker, the trendsetter here. Sarah Hipple is known in the roller derby world as the first woman in roller derby history to skate under her real name. She plays for the Texas Roller Girls in Austin. Uh, the name that she retired, that she will no longer be skating under, is Killbox Sarah Hipple, formerly known as Killbox, derby trendsetter. When asked what her rationale was for changing the name from Killbox, she said, I would like to skate under my name, kind of sums it up. Not a great quote, but a trendsetter in roller derby. All right, we'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to the Slate Podcast in iTunes uh, at iTunes.com slash Slate Podcast, and you can leave us a comment and a rating as well. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hang up and listen. Our intern is Casey Butterly, our producer is Mike Volo, and the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.